Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked. A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. I'm co-host Chris Wells. And we are joined today by James Wright, Head of Technology, Beasley Digital. James, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Very excited to chat with you today. Um, so, I, James, I've known you for, for a while, uh, but could you, uh, for, for the benefit of Chris in the audience, uh, explain what the head of technology for Beasley Digital does? Sure. So, um, hi, everyone. James Wright. I've been at Beasley about 19 years, long time, been in various roles, and I've split some of that time across the US and the UK. So I led the North American US team and then really about three years ago came back to the UK. What I look after is all of our small commercial insurance, um, predominantly specialty risks. So stuff like cyber, DNO, management liability. We've got some bizarre smaller lines, so pleasure craft and yacht business, but essentially everything in the small commercial space. Uh, that's my role. I sit on the leadership team. And we're quite unique, I suppose, in many ways. Digital was formed almost in the model of a, you know, of a smaller technology company. So we're quite cross-functional. Um, so the, the division has got technology operations and underwriting in one team. So I sit on that leadership team that oversee um, those those areas of our business. Sounds like you have your fingers in a lot of pies. What's uh, what's the day to day like? <laughs> Day-to-day for us is um, a lot of my time is spent on trying to figure out how we digitize those products in those countries. So we operate in UK, France, Germany, Spain, and Canada, about 15 products. Um, And a lot of that time that I spend a lot of my time figuring out how do we automate the underwriting of those products. The second part of it is how do we connect those products to distribution how do we get our brokers to access those products in a very efficient and digital way? Um, so, yeah, most of my time is spent figuring out those problems. And, and James, the, the way you describe the, the org structure and all the different roles that you have as part of the, the digital team, um, obviously, working in specialty lines of insurance, when you talk about automating or digitizing the underwriting process, you're looking to automate or digitize processes that have different inputs different data requirements, different submission um, intake processes, right? Probably coming from different distribution partners and things like that. Is is part of the way that you're all structured to be able to have all of those capabilities in-house so that when 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 there is a technical technological difference in where data is coming from or an operational difference in how that data needs to be managed, it's it can get done faster. Just, just talk to me a little bit about like I how that that org structure benefits the nature of such yeah. specialty lines of insurance. No, absolutely. So when we started this team, Beasley had digital trading across its product lines in different areas, different parts of the world. Some were working really well and some were not working so well. But what we realized was that from a broker's perspective, that was really a bit schizophrenic. It's a bit scattergun. It wasn't a consistent digital interface to our business. The second part of that conversation was when you go and visit a broker or talk to a customer, they don't only want to talk about the coverage. 
the product, but they want to talk about how can we access that and make it work efficiently for us. Brokers and carriers are obviously trying to be as efficient as possible, and customers just want to get coverage quickly. So you need to bring to the table not just underwriting skills, but those operational technology skills at the same time to solve those problems. So that was the two kind of sides of the coin that we were trying to fix with the formation of the division. The last part of that is owning the PL. I think a lot of carriers have got a lot of technology initiatives going on across the teams. And to really figure out, are they returning value? Are they really making money? It's quite a hard thing to do. So we put ourselves on the line here a little bit. We've carved out the PL, we've carved out the skills. And it's it's very evident now to us, you know, where is digital trading working and where it isn't? And where it isn't, what, what should we do to fix those problems? Um, I think ultimately it's well received by our brokers. When we show up, we're showing up holistically. We're like, here's our products, how can we solve your problems? A big part of the strategy for us is being organized around our brokers. So meeting our brokers where they want to trade. Um, go on, Chris. Yeah, I was I was just gonna ask, it sounds like you must have not just a technology mandate, but a product mandate and I assume a product organization is that falls under you. Is that right? Yeah. Um the, in terms of the mindset and the way we structure the division to yeah. build what we're building. Yeah, that's interesting. That's I don't, I don't, you don't need me to say this, but that sounds like the <laughs> uh, and it sounds like it's working. I think it's um obviously in an insurance company you've got the product, which is the insurance product. But what we have done is we've organized the team by the de- delivery channels. And in that we've got product owners and product managers, and they think about what they're building as a product. So an example of that would be our API team. I think in most carriers, an API team is probably seen as a technical back office group of people that integrate stuff. Our API team talk to brokers and they think about the APIs as a product. Um, and that's definitely something we're still working on, Chris, but that mindset's really important. Yeah, I love it. Product's hard. I, I have great respect for product people. I, I could not do the job. Not well. Yeah, it's really hard, right? Because we have to find um, people that are curious enough to learn both sides of, of the coin, right? They need to understand the insurance market, the insurance products, and in equal proportion, they need to understand what's feasible with technology, how to solve problems, and how to organize that in a way that creates value. That's a that's a hard job. Yeah, that and users don't always know what they actually want. They will just lie to you unintentionally or intentionally. Um, it happens. So we're getting better at doing things like MVPs, value testing. Uh, we're doing some work at the moment on an ESG service offering, and you know we didn't really have any confidence of what we should build what customers want. So we put together a piece of work that's been very iterative. You know, we've had people out there talking to brokers and clients, testing, you know, painted cardboard, Figma screens, iterating that into an MVP. And and just next month, actually, we'll be launching something for, for real life usage. But that's not because we've got a lot, you know, me saying, this is a great idea. <laughs> it's us saying there's a market need. We don't know how to solve it. And let's test and iterate some concepts. So it's a little bit like your organization, James, is, is kind of like an innovation hub, right? Where it's like you're, you're testing and learning, testing and learning, then seeing if if it's something that you you move into a larger 
you know, operation, uh, I'll say in terms of, of, of rolling something out, how do you, like, what are the, the gates or, or how do you measure success, right? How do you determine um, what is working, what's not? And then do you, is that something that gets to the wayside? Do you just keep pivoting until, until you, you find something because you know that there's a market there? How does, how does that, how does that work? Yeah, it's a great question, right? Because um, I think there's plenty of innovation teams that that might create great things, but that no one uses, which is a big problem. Um, so we use a, the OKR framework quite heavily. Uh, so the way that we've done that is that our leadership team, which I'm on, we've set five strategic objectives. The team, everyone on the team, ops, underwriting, technology, understand what they are. They're then tasked with coming up with their, their key results that sit under those objectives. Um, now, the objectives that we've set are relatively obvious. Like for example, minimum touch, that's one, right? Automate things. The other one is organized around our customer. So don't just build it because you think it's a great idea. Talk to the brokers and figure out how they want to access us. Um, the other one's access to specialists. So obviously, we're not just a tech company. Or like a tech MGA, we've got some legacy underwriting knowledge, and brokers want to access that. So how do you how do we push that to the front of the proposition? So they're the top level objectives. The um, cross functional teams come up with their KRs, and that really keeps us all aligned. I naively thought this model, by the way, would be quite easy to implement. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it probably took us about twelve months to really embed the OKR model into the division. Um, uh, now we're kind of in year two of operating it. We're, we're in a relatively good flow, but it, you know, it's still hard to always think about outcomes over things. Everyone jumps to like, I want a thing, right? I want this thing. <laughs> I've got this solution. Give me an app. <laughs> yeah, just give me an app. Um, so we often say, well, what outcome are we trying to achieve, and how are we going to measure what the outcome is? So it might be, for example, we want to increase the quote to bind ratio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, there might be a thing to get there to do that, but let's talk more about the measure and then we'll figure out with a really good cross-functional team how to make that happen. At what point in this whole process of getting these projects up and running, do you know what the target is for the OKR? Or or is it always more vague, like it should go up? We use baseline metrics, so we typically know where we are. Um. The KRs are typically stretched, you know, so I'm definitely, I'm not saying at the end of every quarter we're high-fiving each other. Um, There's been somewhere (laughs) we've made no progress, but we've learned tons. Um, But I think the difference is that in the team that we've built, when something like that doesn't work, it's not like technology's failed. It's like, okay, how do we pivot? What happened? You know, what have we learned from this? Yeah. Um, Rather than, you know, a fake project plan everything's green until the very last day and it all goes red we're kind of not in that world so i love that you said that you you hit my like biggest pet peeve from my carrier days of just like just because you're moving dates i'm probably gonna get a lot of crap for this like you're moving dates things look right that doesn't mean that things are going right no but (laughs) then it's agile (laughs) that's a whole other tangent Oh, another episode, I think. Maybe maybe that's the B-roll we need. Oh, yeah. I think, um, um, like, we're all, like, obviously, there's a lot of technologists listening to this. And I think we have, you know, I'm guilty of this. I uh, 
often are quite optimistic about what technology can achieve. And sometimes you can go in a little bit hot with what the outcomes could be. Um, I think we have to remain optimistic and positive, otherwise doing our job's really hard. But you do need to be realistic about what the outcomes are going to be and how they need to be iterated. We've recently taken on some work around submission ingestion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So dealing with unstructured emails from brokers and trying to extract the data such that we can optimize the underwriting process. Now, that's a completely different problem to building a policy admin system, right? Building a policy admin system is hard. It is complex, but you know you can do it, right? So we can be kind of confident on that one. But on the on the la- on the first one I mentioned, it's it's a relatively new and developing area. There's lots of stuff out of your control, and I think you know I was probably guilty in this scenario of being the overly optimistic technologist. And this year, by looking at the key results and how they're iterating, we're starting to become a bit more realistic about the outcomes. Without I mean, yeah. technologies failed, right? We're just saying, look, we're just not. It's iterative. We will get there. And James, do you, given that that your your team and, and your roles, both your current and, and previous ones at Beasley, have have crossed international borders, right? So, what does that look like in the U.S. versus, uh, you know, the the countries you're in in, in Europe, um, in terms of how what the submission process is, but then even the data that you're capturing. So, I imagine that you may have to create. You have you want the same outcome, but you may need to create different rules within the different markets you're in, just based on what's available to you. Is that is that fair? Yeah, Michelle, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, I can probably break it into four regions: so the US, the UK, Europe, and Canada. Uh, I'll give you some examples. So, in the US market, we predominantly deal with wholesale brokers. It's a heavily email-driven market. What we've seen in the last three years, let's say, um, has been brokers have got their digital trading strategies and they're equally pivoting as well. So we're starting to see the emergence of APIs become like a predominant um, new way of receiving submission data. Um, And that's, that's continuing. In the UK, it's mainly portal driven business. So brokers are quite comfortable with portals in the UK, um, and that seems to be persisting with the emergence of APIs from brokers. Europe is a is a melding pot of different stuff. Um, <laughs> there's some well-established broker hubs and broker technologies. There's a fair demand in Germany, for example, for embedded insurance with banks. That, that seems to be a, an emerging trend there, and there's still a lot of email business. Canada, we're still figuring out. So we have got a full portfolio of digitized products, but we do know that there's a there's portal fatigue in Canada. Um, and and therefore, we're, we're, we're trying to be a bit different and, and figure out our go-to market strategy in Canada. So watch this space on our, on our Canadian approach. But yeah, different markets, different levels of maturity. Um, but but de- the common theme is probably APIs as carriers and brokers start to get more proficient in operating in those worlds, which makes sense, right? We're, we're just exchanging information with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that will become a predominant way of trading in the next few years. Interesting. 
Portal fatigue is a new one for me. I hadn't heard that before. I like that. <laughs> so are, are you finding specifically with like underwriting and claims, do you find that the challenges in that space are geographically um, sort of organized or are there common challenges across all geographies? There's definitely common challenges. Let's um, maybe give you some, some of the underwriting challenges. Okay. Um, just small commercial specifically, you know, we're looking to straight through process as much as we can to deliver that exceptional service. The challenges there are in data gaps and quality, right? So uh, an example would be we sell a lot of tech E&O insurance. Um, What's E&O insurance? Uh, so errors and emissions. So it's where a technology company is, their product or their services have caused some harm to their client and caused some degree of loss. Now, to ensure that risk, you need to know what the technology company does, right? Now, there's quite a big difference between someone that fixes laptops to someone that's mining crypto, for example. <laughs> now, that could be hard to figure out. It's not an obvious thing um, necessarily. So when that submission comes in, there's always a kind of question mark over the business activity. So we're having to think of ways to ingest what the broker's telling us, but also think about using third-party data to confidence and score that such that we can progress with confidence. Today, even in our team, a lot of that's done by underwriters, right? They Google the company, they look at what they're doing, they look into business activities that might be prohibited, and then underwriting it accordingly. There's other considerations outside of tech, you know, even in standard lines, you know, you may have a restaurant, but it may in some way have, uh, for example, on the side of it, a dispensary for marijuana and it may be that we've decided that marijuana is not an appetite for us and that would then prohibit us from writing that risk now that's not a problem for us but it's a simple example you can imagine you know it's industry class is restaurant but it does have something on the side that's prohibited so that's why you need to get into a bit of the detail on the underwriting side and they're the data gap that make automating this challenging interesting yeah we We've heard this several times uh, over the course of the last few months that data gaps are a big deal. And Michelle's talked about some of the in, you know insure techs out there that are trying to bridge those gaps. So that's glad you brought that one up. Is that would you call that the biggest issue, or is that the one that came to mind first? I think that's one of the data ones. The second one I mentioned already, which is for us, the digital trading strategies of our brokers are at different levels of maturity, they're pivoting, they're unpredictable. Um, so that's super hard. We, we spend a lot more time now trying to keep in lockstep with our broking partners so we know where they are. Um, that, would, that would be the second, I, I guess. And I think the third one is as we get more connected and we're seeing this, cyber's definitely the, the canary in the cage in, in the US on this one. The cyber markets become digital very quickly. Um, so it's almost been the thing that's Uberized the market to some extent. It's forcing us to be more connected. It's forcing us to do things like vulnerability scanning and bringing that data into the underwriting process in a digital way. Um, and that's making the product move quicker. It's making the rates move quicker. Um, it, it's definitely, that's been a big disruptor for us. So we're, and well, that's definitely a, definitely something that's, that's difficult and hard right now for us. And, and James, when you're when when you're talking about 
underwriting talent in these specialty lines, right? And and we're talking about automating a process. Obviously, like, is there still like how much, even if it is automated, how much like underwriter touch on the back end for, for verification or validation do you anticipate there will be, even as as that process matures, just given the complexity of of these specialty lines? It would I think it will vary by product. Um something like cyber in the sub $100 million revenue range, I think will be quite low touch. And so just so you know, we we use kind of litmus testers. If we think we can get to a referral rate of around 20% referred to underwriter, that's really a digital product, right? So that's 80% being straight through processed. Okay. The reason I think cyber can be done is that um, we can learn quite a lot about the client by using third-party data. Okay, so cyber vulnerability scans um, and other metrics that we can collect. Other products, <laughs> it may be more challenging um, because the data is just not, especially for small companies where they're not public, it, it can be quite challenging to get the information you need to underwrite it. And I think in those scenarios, you'll see a referral rate, you know, probably a straight through processing rate more around 40 to 50%. Um, what we do is we look at our referral rates by product and we deploy resources to optimize them where we can. So we look at the question sets, we look at using third-party data, um, we look at our own underwriting methods and see if we can optimize that process. Interesting. And are you are you building tools additionally for the underwriters themselves to help them bridge some of these gaps that exist? Or is it sort of at that point a handoff and they have their own toolkit? We um so we have a, a product engine, and I would say probably the biggest thing we do to assist the underwriter is not providing them with a flashy workbench. Um, it's actually in trying to help them codify their knowledge, so they're not at the keyboard twenty four seven, you know, processing risk manually. So we spend a lot of time sitting with the underwriters trying to understand. What are the rules that are going through your brain when you're selecting and pricing that risk? And then we try and put those rules into the product engine so we can increase the amount of risk that we can automate. But there's always going to be edge cases. And rather than building for the edge case, we just say that's always going to be a referral. It's just too difficult, too complex. Yeah. Always refer. We look for those kind of sweet spots, right? We look for those industry classes and risks where we go, we could definitely automate that one, right? Um, and these things change. As our claims experience develops, we can choose to flip it around the other way. We can change something to referral. And that's just good underwriting, right? We, we're obviously trying to protect that that loss ratio as well. James, given the answer that, that you just gave, which I totally uh, agree with, where do you see AI solutions being the most impactful in that process? It's a good question. I think we're all still figuring that out, right? If I see another demo, <laughs> someone doing some text extraction on a large language model, I'm literally going to shoot my knees off. Um, <laughs> but, um, it's clearly going to be very impactful, right? I think it would be naive to say it won't. The challenge we've got is how do we embed 
that type of technology into some processes that are not yet fully digitized. I think most companies are still in the midst of their digital transformations. Um, so it's trying to figure out how you embed that level of intelligence into a workflow. One example that we are actually doing and, and not just doing silly demos on is in the, the submission world, the text extraction world. Um, we've been, since March this year, using one method of extracting data from submissions, which has been quite um, heavy on the learning, quite heavy on the config. And about a month ago, we started testing a large language model to help extract the information with greater confidence. Um, and that's providing what we think is going to be about 20% uplift in over and above a, a, an older um, model. So that's a great example of us starting to put that process into, into production. Uh, we're not in production with that yet, but um, we will be by the end of the year. It's so exciting and refreshing to talk to someone who's thinking reasonably about <laughs> large language models and insurance. I, over the course of the past, this year really, talked to so many people in technology organizations within insurance companies and they're, the use cases they're talking about, the like hype that they've bought into, it's like, to your point, you haven't finished your digital transformation with technologies that already exist and are well understood, like focus. Back yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's clearly going to be really impactful. I think there's yeah. space in the market for maybe some specialized LLMs in insurance. There's lots of language. There's lots of terminology that's um, nuanced and, you know, e.g. a limit in insurance means something to a limit in a casino. Yep. Right. Um, that's a simple example, but I can see this. There's, there may be space for a, a specialized open source language model for insurance potentially at some point. Um, but yeah, tons of opportunity in that space. We're just at the start of that journey, I think. If if I could figure out a way to get insurance companies to pool their data so that I could fine tune such a thing, I would be very excited. But I'm skeptical about that. Yeah, a lot of us have got lots of data challenges in the, in the sort of middle's back office. Yeah, yeah. Right on. It's just a, it's a consequence of legacy, right? Um, and it's also a consequence of the cost of data quality. You know, when you think about how much information there is in a, in a submission or, or an application form, historically, the cost of getting that structured is just doesn't economically make sense. So we haven't got it. The economics are changing now, right? AI is going to help us probably reduce the cost of getting that data um, by a lot. So again, that's an example of I'm hopeful, but we're still not there. Actually, James, that brings up an interesting, well, a question for me that, because I find what you just said really interesting is in standing up or being responsible for digital first products, right? And distribution, but knowing that the broader organization is still tied to very legacy systems and, and data structure, how do you reconcile those two? Are the, are the, the processes that you're building, the automation you're trying to implement are you building things on top of those systems that it's from a go forward basis? Now you have a better infrastructure or are you still um, having to do all of this with the constraints of, you know, legacy debt uh, 
underpinning what you're building. Yeah. So Bees is going through a digital transformation at group level, and then we've got our division as well. We work in partnership to a large extent. What we've done, we've carved out enough autonomy in our division to control the bits of the process we need to control. Mm. Right. So that's predominantly the product engine, the product rules, wordings, rating, the distribution piece, how we connect to our brokers, and the processes for the underwriters. The group components we back into via API. So we've, we've built that kind of that, that layer. So finance, claims, reinsurance, exposure management, data warehousing, they're all equally at, at busy going through their own journeys. But we can abstract ourselves away from that to a large extent in those data contracts. So I suppose the, the organizational model, we've carved that just enough to be as agile as we can, um, yet still support the group transformation. That was a hard journey to go through from an organizational mm-hmm. perspective, right? So I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the effort, but anybody listening, um, you know, I highly recommend if you're trying to do something and move quickly, you know, convincing your organization to carve out not just technology and ops, but all the people you need to deliver an outcome, but just enough. Because we don't want to duplicate those other bits as well, right? They make, right, it right. doesn't make any sense for us to duplicate those big back, back office teams. They're very expensive and complex. So that's going to Yeah, it's the old saying, right? You ship your org chart. And it sounds like you've got the org chart right, so you can you can ship the software that, that mirrors it. I think that's I think that's great. Yeah. Um, coming back to the AI question, um, obviously, changing, adding this type of technology, which is not perfectly predictable the way ordinary Java code or something would be, um, it produces some challenges, probably some risks. So, what what have you seen at Beasley, and what do you think the market's seeing? In terms of the risk side of it, yeah. Um, so we have, I guess, I've got two two answers to that question. There's the internal answer, which is we have a formal AI um, steering group now that's specifically looking at the internal risks of this um, to ensure that our staff are not, you know, sending all the data to OpenAI and things like that. So we've got that control. And then on the product side, we have a really good product innovation team that sits in our corporate development function. And they're starting to think through, you know, what are our clients' risks with this and how could we potentially help them, you know, transfer some of that risk in, in an insurance vehicle to us. Um, that's still early days. Um, but we've done this before. I think examples are probably on the crypto world. We've got a couple of innovative products for crypto. It took us a while to figure out what we can and can't insure in that space. But um, we've got a couple of new products in crypto. Um, Products Innovation team worked on a really interesting fertility um, insurance product, which ensured outcomes of anyone going through IVF um, because it's a very expensive process. And and again, that's something that we've developed an insurance product for. So I think we will come up with some insurance products for the AI world. We're all still learning, right? So, yeah, I I got to step away so I can go trademark prompt insurance. Uh, I'll be back. Yeah, prompt insurance, <laughs> prompt engineer insurance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that will be covered under a sort of tech ENO policy. But clearly, to your point, Chris, 
you know, the way that we think about technology, I know, is that there are people coding every line of code, and that's clearly not the case anymore. Most tech companies are already using ChatGPT to create SQL scripts and that code and create Python code, and that's happening today. It used to be that every time I was trying to code something, you know, slightly novel, straight to Stack Overflow, and nope. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so... Uh, when you think about when you think about implementing sort of an AI powered technology for your brokers as a part of a product, what do you see? Are there different challenges with that type of product um, in adoption or use, or is it really just the typical? It's a new tool, and I have to get used to it, kind of thing. No, I think there are challenges. So the first one is regulatory. Okay, right. we have to be able to evidence why a system has taken certain decisions or actions. And, it, you know, uh, especially as you guys know, in the US admitted market, that's particularly true. Um, so you've, you've really got to think through your, your regulation. And we're, so, you know, we don't use AI in any of our underwriting at the moment for that, for that reason. Um, I think the other hurdle is, is taking the underwriting teams on that journey of trust, right? Um, it's the the people change side of this is is quite huge. You know, it, everyone knows in tech getting adoption is hard, but in this one, you've got to take your underwriting team or your claims team on that journey with you. Um, so we're starting to do a little bit of that. We've learned that this year actually. That's something we've got to do more of. I think most of the people listening to this would love to know what some of the stages along that journey are. Um, because everyone has to find them and it's they're hard to uncover. Yeah, so the big I think we made a mistake this year in that with regards to automatically trying to get to auto quoting for SME business, we kind of felt like yeah, that's a predominantly an operations benefit. And if we can get the data confidence high enough, we can get to an auto quote outcome. I think what we learned was that we needed to put a human in the loop in that process, but for that human to be an underwriter. Because mm. we need their subject matter expertise. We need their experienced knowledge in looking at what's coming through and providing the correction on it. The second part is if it's ever for that, you know, we want those underwriters to clearly become more portfolio-based. They need to trust what's coming into their portfolios. Um, so we're, you know, we pivoted, we're engaging them more in that end-to-end -end process there is a cost to doing that right because they're they're the team that are producing business and we're getting them more involved in training some machines but it's not just training the machine it's really them training the machine and them gaining trust in, in that you know in that new way of working so that, that, that's been our learning this year really it stands out to me that you didn't mention anything about them being afraid for their employment yeah. No, I don't think that's the case. I think most people at the moment are, um, look, our team working so hard um, and there's so much opportunity to grow. Um, we're not going to go out and hire lots of new underwriters. You can't. Yeah. They don't exist. They're not in the market. They're working somewhere else. Yep. But the only way that we can grab portfolio is through increasing automation. Um, so I think, you know, our, our underwriting team are pretty excited about getting the technology mature enough to take on more of the, the simple risks. Um, 
we're not there yet. We're still in that process, but they're excited about that. I think. Oh, go ahead, Michelle. No, I was gonna. I was gonna point out that I think. Um, I think it's not funny, haha, but just just funny, interesting that you say the simpler risk coming through. But when I think about specialty lines, like I, I understand some of the underwriting maybe simpler, but I just always think it's complex. I know that there, it's not kind of your standard list of questions for submission. And I always imagine that there's a lot of back and forth going on. So um, what I think is probably to your point, James, is that they, the underwriters are excited to get away from some of the very manual um, not value add part of it so that they can get to the the interesting part of really dissecting what is this risk? Yeah. Um, how does it, how does it hit up against our rules? And um, it's like, what's unique about it? That's, that's No, you're yeah, exactly right. I mean, without giving away the secret sauce, yeah. within specialty, they are, it is all complex, but there are some patterns of risk that we perceive as being lower risk and therefore requiring less confidence in the data. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's so a good where, distinction. Yeah. Where if you're, if you, like, give you an example, if you're putting a, let's say, a hairdresser, right, into a certain hazard class, it might be that if it's in hazard class two or three, it, it makes almost no difference to, to the premium. And let's not get too obsessed about that data being of a super high quality. There's other risks for other classes where like it makes a material difference. Like your, yeah. your data confidence needs to be 100% uh, and, and that makes it harder. So it's just taking that, there's a slightly different lens on on um, how you get to automation. Yeah. I don't think we've hit on it yet in, in this conversation, James, but um, how how do, does your team specifically vet uh, third-party uh, support for that, whether it's incumbent large data solutions, whether it's insurtech solutions, be it you know data technology plays, however, um, and how do you think about incorporating that into your process? Do you are you interested in POCs and pilots? Is it not a strategy you guys are are looking to execute on? Um, just curious how that whole ecosystem plays a part in what what you all are building. Yeah, we vet them based on how good their PowerPoint skills are. I'm just joking. <laughs> it's not a recommendation. Um, the, this is going to be a really boring answer, so I'm really sorry, but literally just using sample data sets. So an example would be NAICS code mappings. We have, mm-hmm. We've got loads of data internally because we've manually underwritten these classes. And then we've got a load of new submissions, which we won't have completed the next codes on. And you can just do some simple sampling and testing. And that's how we typically get to to uh, to understanding how good the data is. We typically see hit rates like about data quality from third-party providers. Like most of them are in the, the mid to high 80s when you sort of finish the analysis. And then it's just a debate, is that good enough or not, right? Is that 14% that's not accurate a major issue? Um, so, so you all are not. This is probably just a very broad general general statement, but sounds like you're you're not looking for anyone to help you build the pipes to get mm-hmm. things in the workflow done. You're looking more for areas of impact within your existing workflow where where third parties can be um, more value add than what you've got in house. 
that fair statement, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And we're like, we're all about using partners. I'm definitely a buy versus build guy on this topic. Um, there's lots of people in the world with investment that are trying to solve difficult problems. Um, and there's so many that are so amazingly bright and brilliant. Um, so why not partner with them, bring them into the ecosystem, you know, partner with us in, in, in that way. Amazing. Um, I want to, we're coming up on about 10 minutes left. So I want to give you a chance to tie a bow on all of the wisdom that you've shared with us so far. And uh, then I want to ask where you see automation and underwriting and claims going the next three to five years. So to tie a bow on this for your uh, sort of counterparts at other organizations who are listening to this, what's your advice for those who are struggling to automate these processes? Think about outcomes over things will be point number one. Like drive that conversation pretty hard. Like what is the outcome you're trying to get to here? Because there are a million shiny things out there right now that you can levitate to. We spoke about one of the right large language models. Don't be a magpie looking for shiny things. Um, go for the outcome conversation. And I think the second point would be build that cross-functional team. Like this isn't just a technology problem. Like you need a committed stakeholder who's an expert, right? You need some partners, um, build that team, get the outcome, and then empower that team to deliver some some clever ways to solve the problem. That'll probably be my my recommendation to any practitioner. The title of this episode is going to be Don't Be a Magpie, by the way. <laughs> I just decided that. Awesome. All right. So where are we headed in the next three to five years, do you think? So I can I can talk mainly about small commercial markets. I think um, what I'm seeing in all those regions, right? US, Canada, France, Germany, Spain, the UK, things are becoming increasingly connected between the carrier, the broker, and the client. That's happening at different rates in different countries. Um, and I think that's going to lead to faster product change, right? Whether that be pricing, appetite, or even the services that we add to the to the insurance products, that's all going to accelerate as these markets become more 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 connected. Um, whether that's going to happen in the next three years or the next ten years, I'm not going to try and. I'm definitely not a crystal ball expert on this one, um, but that that connectivity leading to faster cycles, faster innovation is definitely happening in all regions. Amazing. Good. Any other words of wisdom before I wrap us up? Wear green sweat sweaters. <laughs> yeah. Green sweater today. Green sweater day on Unstructured Unlocked. Yeah. Everyone just listening on audio is like, what is what is James talking about? Yeah, yeah. I didn't get the memo for a green sweater, so I I feel I feel like an outsider. No, I'm joking. You look well, dapper so, in your black polo. Yeah, you you've got better weather going on. We are obviously already dressed for for the cold that's that's hitting the northeast. So that is true. Gloomy. That's the well, only other word of wisdom to close on is also yeah. get you know whatever role you've got in the organization, get as close to the cash register as you can. Really understand the customer. Um, I've really encouraged my team to do that, um, and I think. You know, if you if you're looking for that outcome, if you're looking for really understand the problem, it's not always easy, but but 
but definitely ask those questions, be curious and try and understand the, the client as much as you can. And with that, this has been another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. We've been talking to James Wright, head of technology at Beasley Digital, and he's been sharing a lot of really good insights. I've been your co-host, Chris Wells. I'm co-host, Michelle Govea. Thanks, James. This has been great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Michelle. Pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.